What do you think about ketogenic diets? Whether you're on one or thinking about it, you love it, you hate it, or you're curious, you should know how it works. And this video is about how ketogenesis works. Ketogenic diet has neurological benefits. Why do we have to eat such an enormous amount of food? I'm Dr. Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com, and you're watching Masterclass with Masterjohn. We are now in our 32nd in a series of lessons on the system of energy metabolism, and today we are talking about ketogenesis. Ketogenesis is an important component of how we react to glucose deprivation. In the last three lessons, we talked about gluconeogenesis in the context of if we don't have enough glucose, we need to make it. But remember, the main thing that we make glucose from is protein. And if we are in a state of glucose deprivation, we want to take down our glucose requirement. Because if we just turn all the protein we have into all the glucose we would normally use on a mixed diet, we're going to burn through a lot of protein really fast. And if you imagine that you're on a diet that's mostly fat, which is often used as a ketogenic diet today, or in the context of why these systems evolved to handle glucose deprivation in the first place, like fasting, you're going to have to tap into your skeletal muscle and burn through it really fast if you can't push down your glucose requirement. So while gluconeogenesis is how we make the glucose that we don't have, Ketogenesis is an important part of how we conserve the glucose that we do have or that we do get from protein so we don't use it unnecessarily when we can get alternative fuels. And the main thing that ketogenesis is doing is allowing tissues that aren't good at using fatty acids themselves to use ketone bodies, which are water-soluble, much smaller pieces of fatty acids made mostly by the liver and use those for energy in place of using glucose or using fatty acids themselves. So clarifying the purpose as we just have, let's dig right into how the process of ketogenesis works. As we first covered in lesson four, in order for acetyl-CoA to enter the citric acid cycle, it needs to condense with oxaloacetate to form citrate, leaving coenzyme A freed in that reaction to pick up the next acetyl group. That means that in order for acetyl-CoA to enter, the supply of oxaloacetate, whether oxaloacetate is there, is important. The biochemical event that initiates ketogenesis is the accumulation of acetyl-CoA when there is no oxaloacetate to drive it into the citric acid cycle to form citrate. This doesn't mean there's ever no oxaloacetate, that oxaloacetate is at zero supply. 
What this means is that if acetyl-CoA is coming into the citric acid cycle and then oxaloacetate gets used up because there's only a certain amount available, all the excess acetyl-CoA that's left over that can't enter the citric acid cycle will then undergo ketogenesis. But as we covered in lesson 16 on anaplerosis, normally pyruvate serves as the source of oxaloacetate whenever it's limiting. Remember, the main fate of pyruvate is to undergo pyruvate dehydrogenase to form acetyl-CoA. If the acetyl-CoA has oxaloacetate to enter the citric acid cycle, it does. If it doesn't, it inhibits the pyruvate dehydrogenase complex temporarily and stimulates pyruvate carboxylase. The inhibition of pyruvate dehydrogenase conserves pyruvate to enter through pyruvate carboxylase instead, and acetyl-CoA increasing the activity of this enzyme, which would otherwise be one of the few things in biochemistry that ever is at zero activity in the absence of acetyl-CoA binding to it. That amp acetyl-CoA amping up pyruvate carboxylase allows pyruvate to form the oxaloacetate that's needed to allow acetyl-CoA to enter again. Then that acetyl-CoA stops accumulating, pyruvate carboxylase goes back to zero, and the main fate of pyruvate gets resumed to form acetyl-CoA. This means that for ketogenesis to happen, you have to have depletion of oxaloacetate that is not supplied in this way immediately thereafter. That means in order to get ketogenesis, you need depletion of pyruvate. Although the main source of pyruvate on a mixed diet is carbohydrate, because pyruvate is the end product of glycolysis and therefore is derived from glucose, we also talked in lesson 16 on anaplerosis that the amino acid alanine can form pyruvate. And in fact, we also talked in lesson eight about how aspartate, another amino acid, can directly form oxaloacetate, and how glutamate, another amino acid, can form alpha-ketoglutarate. If alanine forms pyruvate, the pyruvate supplies oxaloacetate that allows acetyl-CoA to enter the citric acid cycle, and that prevents acetyl-CoA from accumulating and entering into ketogenesis. If glutamate supplies alpha-ketoglutarate, that alpha-ketoglutarate becomes oxaloacetate that does exactly the same thing, again, preventing ketogenesis. Not shown on this screen, there are many other amino acids that we will talk about when we get to protein metabolism that can either form pyruvate or oxaloacetate or one of the precursors of oxaloacetate in a manner analogous to what's shown on the screen for alanine, aspartate, and glutamate, the amino acids that we've already talked about in previous lessons. What that means is that anything that makes oxaloacetate suppresses ketogenesis, and therefore, protein, through a great variety of amino acids, as well as glucose, can equally suppress ketogenesis at a biochemical level. Now, it's important to distinguish between the biochemical suppression of ketogenesis and the physiological suppression of ketogenesis. 
Biochemistry is the study of the reactions and the enzymes and the pathways that they come together to make. Physiology is the study of how biochemistry and other processes within cells and between cells are coordinated in a systematic way to support the function of the organism as a whole. On a biochemical level, carbohydrate and protein are equally suppressive of ketogenesis. That's not true on the physiological level. In order to understand the physiological suppression of ketogenesis by carbohydrate and insulin, we need to review lipoprotein lipase, which we first introduced in Lesson 23 on insulin secretion, and hormone-sensitive lipase, which we first introduced in Lesson 25 on how insulin shuts down fat burning. We then revisited lipoprotein lipase again in Lesson 26 on the question of whether insulin makes you fat. We're going to now come back to these same effects of insulin to look at how insulin suppresses ketogenesis on a physiological level. To briefly review lipoprotein lipase and hormone-sensitive lipase, they're shown on the screen. The left panel shows lipoprotein lipase. Lipoprotein lipase is secreted by an LPL-producing cell. LPL is lipoprotein lipase. And that cell will send the LPL out to be embedded in the capillary endothelial cells of the capillaries that feed that tissue. For the moment, since we're mostly concerned with adipose fat, let's think mostly about the adipocyte. So the adipocyte secretes LPL into the capillaries that feed the adipose tissue, and the LPL goes into the capillary endothelial bed. Chylomicrons carry triglycerides from the fat in the meal that you had just eaten, and the triglycerides are hydrolyzed by LPL to glycerol and free fatty acids, leaving behind chylomicron remnants that later get taken up mostly by the liver, and the glycerol and fatty acids come into adipose tissue. There are other enzymes that will then resynthesize triglycerides from the glycerol and fatty acids. Meanwhile, the adipose tissue, as well as many other cells, but the adipose tissue, for purposes of releasing fatty acids into the blood, has hormone-sensitive lipase, or HSL, and this is responsible for hydrolyzing triglycerides inside the adipocyte. They become glycerol and fatty acids for release into the blood. Now, HSL in other tissues besides adipose tissue serves the internal needs of that tissue. But in adipose tissue, we have LPL and HSL that determine the flux of free fatty acids. The more LPL activity we have, the more fat will get taken up into adipose tissue. LPL activity can release fatty acids into the blood if they exceed the ability of the adipose tissue to take them up, but its main function is to get fat into the adipose tissue. HSL serves the opposite function. So we retain fat in adipose tissue when we have high LPL activity at adipose and low HSL activity at adipose. We have a lot of free fatty acids moving from adipose tissue into the blood when we have the opposite conditions. Insulin promotes the retention of fat 
in adipose tissue. Now, we talked about why that doesn't mean that carbohydrate intrinsically makes you fat in lesson 26. But for the purposes of discussing the physiological suppression of ketogenesis, it's important to note that fatty acids being released into the blood will become the major source of acetyl-CoA that can't enter the citric acid cycle. So it's very relevant that insulin promotes the retention of fat in adipose tissue. Remember, under conditions of high insulin signaling, LPL is reduced in heart and skeletal muscle, favoring fat not being taken up into those tissues. Insulin increases LPL at adipose tissue, favoring taking up fat there. It also suppresses HSL at adipose tissue, favoring the retention of that fat inside the adipocyte instead of allowing its release into the blood. It's also important to understand the influence of insulin and glucagon on gluconeogenesis because gluconeogenesis affects the supply of oxaloacetate. Remember that insulin and glucagon as well as energy status regulate it. When you have conditions of high glucagon signaling and low insulin signaling, and when you have lots of energy inside the liver rather than low energy in the liver, that's when you get a lot of gluconeogenesis. When you have low energy status in the liver or you have a high insulin to glucagon ratio, that's when you suppress gluconeogenesis. The conditions that favor maximal ketogenesis in the liver are the conditions that allow a high rate of entry of fatty acids into the liver and a high degree of gluconeogenesis. Fatty acids, when they reach the liver, are undergoing beta-oxidation and generate acetyl-CoA. If that acetyl-CoA was generated by carbohydrate or protein, it would be relatively easy for anaplerosis, introduced in Lesson 16, to supply the oxaloacetate that would be needed to take that acetyl-CoA into the citric acid cycle. But since fatty acids generate acetyl-CoA without a very quantitatively significant way of also supplying oxaloacetate through anaplerosis, it's fatty acids that will generate the acetyl-CoA that can't enter the citric acid cycle. Under conditions of low insulin signaling, when you have lots of fatty acids entering into the liver in this way, those are the same conditions that have oxaloacetate, whether derived from aspartate, from other precursors in the citric acid cycle, or from pyruvate. Oxaloacetate leaves the citric acid cycle for gluconeogenesis under conditions of low insulin signaling. So the conditions that favor fatty acids reaching the liver are the same conditions that favor oxaloacetate leaving the citric acid cycle, which all the more enhances the likelihood that that acetyl-CoA will not be able to enter the citric acid cycle and will therefore generate ketones. Now, keep in mind that if you have fatty acids being released from adipose tissue and it's the liver that's bearing the brunt of metabolizing those fatty acids for the needs of the rest of the body, that 
also means that the fatty acids can supply the liver with energy, and that energy can be used for gluconeogenesis. So this diagram is not meant to imply that none of the acetyl-CoA from the fatty acids enters the citric acid cycle. Instead, some of it does, and what does is used to supply the high-energy status in the liver that can contribute to the synthesis of glucose. But the synthesis of glucose requires depletion of oxaloacetate from the citric acid cycle. And there's tons of acetyl groups from all this incoming fatty acid beta oxidation that are now left over that after the energy status is, the needs for energy status are met, cannot enter the citric acid cycle because even that energy that they supplied helped the oxaloacetate leave the cycle for gluconeogenesis. All of this together is what contributes to the biochemical event, the biochemical event that initiates ketogenesis, which is the accumulation of acetyl-CoA that cannot enter the citric acid cycle because of a relative lack of oxaloacetate. When thinking about the physiological suppression of ketogenesis and distinguishing between the effects of carbohydrate and protein, we need to think about the effects of these nutrients on insulin and glucagon that was di discussed briefly in Lesson 23. So remember that carbohydrate leads to more insulin production than protein does. But protein still stimulates insulin. By contrast, carbohydrate suppresses glucagon and protein raises it. Now, remember, we briefly talked about this as a way of preventing hypoglycemia when you eat protein. Because if protein stimulates some insulin, which helps the protein's amino acids being taken up into cells and undergo metabolism, if that protein just makes insulin, it's going to cause hypoglycemia because the insulin also drives carbohydrate into cells. So by also stimulating glucagon, we could see that as a way of preventing the hypoglycemia that protein would cause if it only stimulated the secretion of insulin. But now we can look at how this plays into ketogenesis. When we're talking about the release of fatty acids from adipose tissue, it's insulin that's almost by itself relevant rather than glucagon. But when talking about gluconeogenesis, it's the insulin to glucagon ratio that's key. So when we have carbohydrate restriction, we get a lot of glucagon and less insulin. The less insulin is the main thing driving up free fatty acids in the blood. The low insulin to glucagon ratio is the main thing driving increased gluconeogenesis. The influx of free fatty acids in the blood mostly goes to the liver, or at least the lion's share of those fatty acids go to the liver, and that generates a lot of acetyl-CoA in the liver. Meanwhile, the gluconeogenesis occurs from oxaloacetate leaving the citric acid cycle, and so gluconeogenesis contributes to the relative deprivation of oxaloacetate inside the liver. That means that the hepatic acetyl-CoA to oxaloacetate ratio goes through the roof. 
And that leads to ketogenesis. So when talking about physiological suppression, it's mainly carbohydrate that's suppressing ketogenesis. And what we mean by physiological suppression is the prevention of free fatty acids from reaching the liver and the suppression of hepatic gluconeogenesis. By contrast, it's still the case that at a biochemical level, it's carbohydrate and protein that are equally suppressive of ketogenesis. And by biochemical suppression, we mean anaplerosis, covered in Lesson 16, the provision of oxaloacetate or one of its precursors. We'll look in the future how this might play out on a quantitative level in the diet. But what it ultimately means is that because your diet influences your physiology and your biochemistry, then dietary protein will suppress ketogenesis, just not as much as dietary carbohydrate will. So mechanistically, why is it that the accumulation of acetyl-CoA that can enter the citric acid cycle in the liver generates ketone bodies? The reason is because of the biochemical pathway shown on the screen. What we're doing in this biochemical pathway is we're ultimately joining acetyl-CoA in multiple units to make acetoacetate. As its name implies, acetoacetate is essentially two acetyl groups joined together. But in the process, we're actually joining three and we're cleaving apart the intermediates in a way that leaves us with what appears to be two structurally joined units. So the first thing that happens is acetyl-CoA condenses with another acetyl-CoA using the enzyme beta-ketothiolase, which cleaves the CoA from one of the acetyl-CoA, but not the other. And so you can see this color-coded where one acetyl-CoA is in pink, the other is in blue. They join together, but in the process, the enzyme beta-ketothiolase takes away this CoA on top that allows this one to join to that one that CoA leaves, and what you have left over is acetoacetyl-CoA. And you can see the blue from the acetyl group that came in on the bottom and the pink from the one that came in on top. So we still have this acetoacetyl unit, two acetyl groups joined together, that are also joined to CoA. A third acetyl-CoA, shown in green, comes in and the enzyme hydroxymethylglutyryl-CoA synthase hydrolyzes that acetyl-CoA so that CoA leaves and its acetyl group is joined to the bottom of acetoacetyl-CoA. That generates 3-hydroxy-3-methylglutyryl-CoA. Then hydroxymethylglutyryl-CoA cleavage enzyme cleaves off from the end what is now one unit of acetyl-CoA to generate the final and first ketone body, acetoacetate. 
The names of these molecules are important, and the enzymes in this pathway are also important. But we're going to come back to look at the intermediates in ketogenesis later when we talk about how the metabolism of certain amino acids intersects with this pathway during protein metabolism. For now, we're going to show the details, but focus on why acetyl-CoA enters this pathway, which we've already done, and then what happens to acetoacetate once it's made, which we'll now go on to do now. Acetoacetate is the first of the three ketone bodies. It has two major fates. One is to be converted to D3-hydroxybutyrate, and the other is to be converted to acetone. These three together make up the ketone bodies. Now, if acetoacetate gets converted to D3-hydroxybutyrate, it will be because the hepatic ratio of NADH to NAD plus is high. This conversion is enzymatic and completely reversible. D3-hydroxybutyrate dehydrogenase is what reduces the keto group of acetoacetate. Remember, the carbonyl that's situated between two other carbons is a keto group. It reduces the keto group to a hydroxyl group. And so actually, D3-hydroxybutyrate is not a ketone, even though one of, it's chemically, even though it's one of the three ketone bodies. If you look at the name of this compound, it's called 3-hydroxybutyrate, because if we start with the carboxyl group that makes this an acid, which is the most important functional group, we can count the carbons 1, 2, 3, and the hydroxyl group is on carbon 3. We call it D3 because once we reduce the keto group to a hydroxyl group, we now have stereoisomerism. We get stereoisomerism when there's a chiral carbon. A car chiral carbon is a carbon that's attached to four different things. If we look at one as a hydrogen ion, one is an OH group, one is a methyl group, one is the rest of this molecule, there's four different things attached to that carbon that's not true in the carbon before it was reduced. Now that it is, that means that with a chiral carbon, the way those different pieces are oriented around the carbon can make the difference between one isomer and another, and we use letters like DNL to distinguish between the possible conformations. And so the full name of this is D3-hydroxybutyrate. However, we could also call this beta-hydroxybutyrate because if we look at the carboxyl group we care about, the next carbon is alpha to it, and the carbon after that is beta to it. So this is beta-hydroxybutyrate, and in fact, it's much more common in even scientific papers, let alone pop science culture, to call this beta-hydroxybutyrate. The other fate of acetoacetate is a slow and spontaneous decarboxylation to form acetone. That happens when the carboxyl group, shown in purple, comes off forming acetone. The reduction of acetoacetate to beta-hydroxybutyrate is very analogous to the reduction of pyruvate to lactate 
covered in lesson 15. Acetoacetate is a beta-keto acid, and beta-hydroxybutyrate is a beta-hydroxy acid. That's because if we count up from the carboxyl group alpha-beta, we have a beta-keto group on acetoacetate, and we have a beta-hydroxy group on beta-hydroxybutyrate. When we go from pyruvate, an alpha-keto acid, to lactate, an alpha-hydroxy acid, we're just doing the same thing. The only difference is that if we count from the carboxyl group on pyruvate, the keto group is in the alpha position, and in lactate, the OH group that's derived from the keto group of pyruvate is in the alpha position as well. Other than that, these reactions are almost identical. We have beta-hydroxybutyrate dehydrogenase on the one hand and lactate dehydrogenase on the other hand. In both cases, we have NADH reducing the keto group to the hydroxy group. And in both cases, doing that liberates NAD+, and going in the opposite direction, sequesters NAD+, as NADH. This is interesting for two reasons. From just the perspective of what we call these molecules, we're talking about ketogenesis, and we're associating it with fat, and yet beta-hydroxybutyrate, which is sold as an exogenous ketone, is not a ketone. It's a ketone body because historically, we've referred to the process of ketogenesis as what happens in uncontrolled diabetes or on ketogenic diets, and beta-hydroxybutyrate pops up into the blood under those conditions. So we call it a ketone body. But chemically, it's not a ketone. Acetoacetate is a ketoacid. And pyruvate, derived mostly from glucose, is a ketoacid. And it generates lactate, which is not a ketone, in the same exact way that beta-hydroxybutyrate is not a ketone. That's interesting just for the sake of curiosity. What's interesting from a practical perspective is that in later lessons, we can talk about how the conversion of acetoacetate to beta-hydroxybutyrate can be a way of rescuing mitochondrial NAD+, in just the same way that converting pyruvate to lactate is a way of rescuing cytosolic NAD+. And that can be an important part of how ketogenesis could help with certain aspects of energy metabolism. The slow and spontaneous decarboxylation of acetoacetate to form acetone is analogous to the decarboxylation of oxalosuccinate to form alpha-ketoglutarate in the citric acid cycle that we talked about in lesson six. If you look at acetoacetate and you count the carbons from the carboxyl group that decarboxylates, and you count up alpha, beta, you can see that the ketone is in the beta position to that carboxyl group, which makes it a beta-keto acid. In oxalosuccinate, we have the carboxyl group that's going to decarboxylate shown in purple, and if we count the carbons next to it, alpha, beta, we see the keto group is in the beta position, again, making oxalosuccinate a beta-keto acid. 
For the reasons that we describe in exhaustive detail in lesson six, beta keto acids are unstable and tend to decarboxylate. The same thing that makes oxalosuccinate decarboxylate to alpha-ketoglutarate in a rapid enzymatic in a rapid enzymatic fashion because it's catalyzed makes acetoacetate, which doesn't have an enzyme to catalyze this, slowly but spontaneously decarboxylate to form acetone. Whereas acetoacetate and oxalosuccinate are keto acids, and in fact, even alpha-ketoglutarate is a keto acid, acetone is a simple ketone. It has a keto group, a carbonyl between two carbons, but it's not an acid. Even more recently, in lesson 29, we saw this slide about how we get around the irreversibility of the pyruvate kinase reaction in gluconeogenesis by forming oxaloacetate from pyruvate, which is an unstable beta-keto acid, and that helps us form phosphoenolpyruvate, which is an even more unstable enol. We talked about the rationale behind this in Lesson 29, so we're not going to talk about it again, but we'll briefly note here that oxaloacetate is a beta-keto acid, and that confers, confers instability that makes it easier to form phosphoenolpyruvate in the energy-intensive way described, catalyzed by PEPCK in gluconeogenesis. One final point about acetone. Because it's not an acid like acetoacetate is, it's very volatile. Now, we first talked about the volatility of acetic acid in lesson three when we introduced cellular respiration and talked about how one of the roles, not the only role by any means, but one of the roles of coenzyme A is to weigh down small molecules like acetyl groups, because acetic acid would be volatile. But then in lesson 13, we talked about how we don't form acetaldehyde in significant amounts in metabolism, not only because it would be toxic, but because acetaldehyde has even weaker reactions with water than acetate does, or acetic acid does, making it even more volatile than acetic acid. Out of all of these, acetone is the most volatile. And we can see why by the slide on the screen that compares the interactions with water. Remember, interactions with water are facilitated by polar bonds and especially by charged ions. In acetate, we have small size, which makes it more volatile, but we have this full negative charge on the oxygen which provides incredibly strong interactions with water. The polarity around the carbonyl group also provides interactions with water, but nowhere near as strong as those conferred by the full negative charge on the oxygen. In acetone, we do have some polarity around the carbonyl, but we don't have any other polar bonds and we don't have any full charges. So acetone is also very small, like acetate, but it has very little causing it to interact with water. If it's floating through your blood, which is mostly water, 
and there's nothing holding it in that aqueous solution because of interactions with that water, then its small size and the fact that it doesn't really care about any of the water in its surroundings makes it very easily evaporate through the lungs. That's what we call ketone breath. Ladies will recognize acetone as the smell of nail polish remover. Dudes will recognize the smell of acetone as the smell of paint thinner. On a ketogenic diet, when there's a large generation of acetone, someone can develop that characteristic smell in their breath, and that's what we call ketone breath. The audio of this lesson was generously enhanced and post-processed by Bob Devodian of Torian Mixing, giving you strong sound and dependable quality. You can find more of his work at torianonlinemixing.com. If you want to keep watching these lessons, you can find them on my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash chrismasterjohn, or on my Facebook page at facebook.com slash chrismasterjohn, or you can sign up for NWM Pro to get early access to content, enhanced keyword searching, self-pacing tools, downloadable audio, downloadable transcripts, a rich array of hyperlinked further reading suggestions, and a community with a form for each lesson. So if you really want to own these lessons, study them, and get the most of them, you can sign up for NWM Pro at chrismasterjohnphd.com slash pro. All right, this is how ketogenesis works. In future lessons, coming up shortly, we'll see the various benefits and pitfalls that we can get from a ketogenic diet. I hope you found this useful. Signing off, this is Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com. You've been watching Masterclass with Masterjohn, and I will see you in the next lesson.